0: My name is Ralph Goodale. I'm Minister of Public Safety in the Government of Canada. Uh, Also the Minister for Emergency Preparedness and the Member of Parliament for Regina Wascana.
1: Welcome to a podcast called Intrepid. My name is Craig Forces. I'm here with Stephanie Carvin. And Stephanie, today we have a pod site with a guest and our guest is
2: a very special guest indeed it is minister ralph goodale who's the minister of public safety and emergency preparedness canada who is uh going to speak to us and i think probably address some of our greatest hits from the podcast that we've been talking about for the last two years this is a an incredible opportunity we really appreciate your time
0: very glad to participate
1: Thanks, Minister, for discussing some of the issues in national security law and policy that have been front and centre for the last couple of years. And I guess the starting point really is to note that you've been in office as the minister for four years, riding the fire hose. And uh, this is not uh, a quiet portfolio. It's a very busy portfolio. I wonder if you have some observations on on what this portfolio has been like. What, what is What is your day like?
0: Well, it's, it's it's big, it's very uh, uh, diverse in the kinds of issues you have to deal with. Uh, it's also, um, in many ways, unpredictable. Uh, I've just, I haven't really kept track day by day by day, but uh, I think it's fair to say uh, every morning there's a surprise in <laughs> store. Uh, sometimes they're um, kind of routine and manageable, and and sometimes they're, they're big and unexpected this, uh, this spring, for example, uh, dealing with uh, all the flooding around the, uh, the Ottawa River Valley and, and the St. Lawrence and New Brunswick and to a lesser extent in Manitoba, uh, that was a major preoccupation for, uh, for many weeks and that just finished. Uh, and the fire season started. In fact, there were days where at one end of the country we were fighting the floods and at the other end of the country uh, we were fighting brush fires in Saskatchewan and then, and then uh, wildfires in, in northern Alberta, uh, parts of Manitoba and northwestern Ontario. So, and, and there will be something like that, some new issue uh, that, uh, that, that needs to be dealt with uh, every single day that I wouldn't have been able to predict. The day before, so it's the it's the the, the unpredictability of it that makes this portfolio uh, uh, so uh, uh, exhilarating and uh, uh, and challenging at the same time, uh, and it's the, the the magnitude of the issues. Uh, usually, someone's livelihood or life is directly affected by those issues every single day.
2: I mean, it's it's interesting that you say that, and just a look at your Twitter feed just shows the very large range of issues that you deal with on a daily basis. I mean, whether it's foreign fighters, whether it's, um, you know, cyber issues, marijuana, things burning down or being flooded, that's all you in some way. And so, you know, and I've written about this before, and, and maybe maybe the polite answer is to say no, but I guess I've always felt that maybe the portfolio is a little too large for any one person. I mean, I'm not suggesting it's falling apart, but, should the next government and you know who, who, someone else is going to potentially be in this position in, in six months? Should they rethink this portfolio?
0: The the issues within the portfolio are in most instances very interconnected uh, in a way that would make it difficult to uh, uh, to sever the portfolio uh, completely. The volume is big. Yeah, it's. it's uh, uh, it's a, a daunting challenge to deal with all of it at once, especially when there are um, very uh, live issues in several different dimensions of the portfolio, uh, in the correctional system or, or at work in national security or dealing with, with uh, emergency preparedness and the fires and the floods and, and, and all of that. Um, so you need, I think, the coherence and the interconnectedness that the, uh, that the portfolio, as it is presently structured, uh, provides in order to, to make sure uh, that uh, everything is, is being covered. Uh, but as you will notice, um, the, uh, uh, the Prime Minister uh, has added uh, an additional minister to the portfolio yes. uh, in, uh, in Bill Blair, uh, and he deals specifically with, with, with border issues, the asylum issues, which are big and, and time-consuming, uh, as well as the fight against organized crime. Uh, gangs and uh, and some very important dimensions of uh, firearm safety and, and and dealing with guns. Uh, so uh, rather than than uh, uh, redesigning the architecture of the portfolio, I think that is one of the ways that. Uh, uh, you can effectively manage the volume, right? Uh, and I, th- I think of uh, the, the the global affairs portfolio, for example, uh, where you have the minister of foreign affairs, the minister of international trade, uh, the uh, the minister of international development, uh, are all part of that of that total portfolio, which functions together as a as a coherent whole. But there are there are additional ministers that uh, assume some of the responsibilities. Uh, I think you need the coherence within one portfolio, uh, but uh, uh, a prime minister in the future may decide to uh, to add additional ministers to assume portions of the responsibility.
2: Because um, we were talking a little bit beforehand, uh, you've pushed forward 12 pieces of legislation um, so far for this, I, I'm going to use the word mandate. I think yep, someone might that's right. Uh, right. I got it right. That's great. <laughs> you know of which of which you think on ten going through. And, and as you say, it's like everything from like addressing solitary confinement through to marijuana legislation, expunging criminal records, C fifty nine, which is our favorite topic. These mm-hmm. kinds of things. You know how how do you manage a portfolio that that's kind of big? Uh,
0: well, it, it it takes a good deal of effort, but I'm uh, very ably assisted by by uh, a very dedicated and, uh, and nimble uh, public service. Uh, they have uh, uh, worked their hearts out over the course of the last uh, four years. We have pushed and pushed and pushed uh, in, uh, uh, in areas that have been pretty challenging. Uh, C-59, for example, mm-hmm. is the, uh, the largest uh, uh, renovation and rejuvenation of Canadian national security law in, in three or four decades. Uh, in addition to that, the, uh, the, the, the legislation around uh, firearms has been a, a, a major uh, uh, preoccupation, uh, the, the, uh, the creation of the new uh, National Security and Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians, uh, the expansion of the whole system of preclearance for border crossings between Canada and the United States, the new entry-exit system that uh, wasn't there before and uh, probably should have been, but it's, uh, uh, it's there now. Uh, as you say, we, we, we've brought forward uh, 12 major pieces of legislation. Um, I'm uh, uh, very hopeful that uh, all of them will get across the finish line, <laughs> but uh, it looks pretty good for at least 10 out of the 12, uh, and we'll keep, uh, keep pushing for all of them. Uh, but the public service has been enormously supportive uh, and, and then indispensable in the whole process of, of making progress on, on things as big and important as this uh, is uh, my political staff. Uh, uh, my, my chief of staff in Marcy Sirks uh, and uh, just an amazing team of uh, people who managed to keep uh, all of the, uh, the balls bouncing in proper sequence. Uh, managing the uh, the interface with the public service, with all of the stakeholders, with the parliamentary system, uh, with uh, a new element in the parliamentary system, which is the uh, the reformed and very changed Senate, uh, which uh, operates on an entirely different set of rules and expectations, always did, but now especially so. To to keep all of that together, the the political staff is just critical. Uh, and uh, I have been very fortunate to have uh, a group of very talented, nimble, effective people uh, who managed to put up with me on a daily basis. <laughs> uh, but uh,
2: I, I think I think uh, someone told me uh, that uh, Marcy Circus, uh, out of all the the the, the chief of staff, is the only one who's actually made it through the entire mandate.
0: With uh, their current minister, she uh, <laughs> she certainly has longevity, and I have the uh, I have the great privilege of uh, having uh, known her for a good long while uh, before the government came into office. We were working together in various capacities uh, in in opposition, uh, and uh, her her talent in uh, managing people, getting the very best out of people. Uh, in the midst of a really hectic schedule and a heavy agenda, uh, that's uh, that's indispensable.
2: Okay, Great. so now for the harder questions. C-59, Craig, do you want to do the Yes, so we're recording this the first
1: full week of June, and so by the time this is posted, uh, things may have developed to the point where we can say that C-59 is law. But as we speak right now, we have the Senate uh, having approved, after third reading, uh, the bill with a set of amendments, and and of course now goes back to Commons. Are you able to tell us exactly what's in store for C-59 as we speak today on Thursday?
0: Well, uh, hopefully the, uh, the House will find time uh, very shortly to uh, to deal with with C fifty nine. We have the report from the Senate. Uh, they made a number of recommendations, but they made four specific uh, amendments. Uh, I will be uh, reporting back to them that uh, all of their work is appreciated. Uh, some of their their recommendations and suggestions are uh, are very interesting. For example, they zero right in on issues like uh, evidence versus intelligence and how you can. Uh, make effective use of uh, intelligence in a form uh, that will uh, actually stand up in a court of law. So, how you convert intelligence to evidence—they—they they've, uh, have really uh, delved into the legislation uh, in a very serious way. Senator Gold was was leading that that process, uh, and uh, the Senate's done very constructive work. Uh, we will be able to uh, to accept. Some of the amendments, uh, the, the specific amendments they've recommended, uh, uh, not all of them, for uh, for good reasons, uh, and we will uh, um, explain those uh, those reasons in the uh, in the course of, of the debate. Uh, but I'm I'm hopeful that uh, once we respond to the Senate's amendments and recommendations, uh, that they will uh, uh, respond in turn in a in a favorable way, uh, and that we can see Bill C59. Uh, across the finish line. That then leads to a very complicated uh, implementation process, which, which you have commented on uh, in, in previous podcasts. But uh, bear in mind that this legislation is the biggest renovation in security law in, uh, in a very long time. It uh, creates the new uh, National Security and Intelligence Review Agency, the Super CERC, as some people uh, call it. Uh, it provides uh, a new range of powers and authorities, uh, as well as duties and responsibilities for for both CSIS uh, and the Communications Security Establishment, which never before has had a standalone authorizing uh, piece of legislation to uh, uh, to create it and to uh, to govern it. Uh, there is a, a special provision in the Act. Uh, that deals with uh, uh, information sharing, particularly where information derived from a foreign source may have issues associated with it that taint it from the point of view of, of abuse or, uh, or, or uh, uh, torture. Um, and we've always had ministerial directives to deal with that, but now there will be a very public process uh, through orders and counsel that will, uh, that will make that protection against torture uh, far more public and far more explicit in the uh, uh, in the law, uh, there are uh, rules about sharing information internally among among government agencies. There are amendments to the criminal code. Uh, there's the creation of a new innovation called the intelligence commissioner, which has never existed before, uh, and this will be the first real element of real time oversight in in the. Uh, um, whole process of transparency and, uh, and, and accountability. Uh, there are other provisions that, uh, uh, that deal with the uh, Secure Air Travel Act and of course uh, we had certain issues in mind when we started drafting the bill, uh, but then it became very apparent during the drafting that there was one big issue that wasn't being properly addressed and that's this, the no-fly kids issue. That is addressed in the, uh, in the legislation. Uh, in a very explicit way. We need that legislation in order then to draft the regulations that will fix the problem for the no-fly kids. We've got the budget, we've got the political authority to do it, we need the legal authority to do it and that's contained in in Bill uh, Bill C-59. There's a a review process to reassess all of this legislation. Uh, We originally said five years. The Senate wants to shorten that to three years. That's a good bit of advice that we will be uh, that we'll be taking in the in the process. So, it's a massive piece of legislation. Uh, some of it will come into effect uh, immediately. Others will need a little bit of time to draft the regulations and and pull it together. Uh, but uh, this is an important change so uh, in the way that national security is handled in this country. So
1: the coming into force of many of the provisions is dependent then on the governor and council, that is cabinet, uh, uh, issuing an order in council. How does that interface with the prospect of uh, electoral period and the caretaker convention? And so will there be an urgency in getting into force these provisions before everything grinds to a halt? In anticipation of the uh, of the election cycle,
0: we we need to be respectful of that convention that at a certain point prior to an election, the incumbent, the incumbent government needs to restrict itself to a caretaker function uh, and um, leave important new decisions to the uh, uh, the new the new government that will be elected in uh, in October. Uh, but when the legislation passes we will have the authority from Parliament to proceed with Bill C-59 and all of the elements within Bill C-59. Uh, and we will be trying to move as quickly as possible uh, to, uh, to get the important uh, upfront elements uh, uh, into place uh, so that uh, our security agencies uh, have the tools that they need uh, and that Canadians will be well served by the new regime. Uh, and and this, this is one thing about this legislation, it has been the subject of the most extensive public consultations ever in Canadian history. Uh, Canadians have never been invited to participate in the process as much as they have around Bill, uh, Bill C-59. Uh, so given, given the extensive public consultation, given the fact that it's based on three very important uh, judicial decisions uh, and reports by, uh, by uh, O'Connor and Major and Yakabuchi, given the fact that uh, uh, it responds to a, to a previous Senate report, uh, a more recent House of Commons report, uh, as well as those massive uh, uh, public consultations and the advice of the existing review bodies like uh, the Security Intelligence Review Committee, All of that is rolled up in C-59. Uh, I think we have a very strong base of of public credibility behind this legislation to uh, proceed with it as quickly as possible.
2: If if I can, I mean, just on that uh, issue, it's interesting because someone at public safety had said to me, you know, we approach this bill in the same way we approached health care you know it wasn't exceptional it was we treated it, we treated national security like a normal public policy issue and i think that's probably what makes it exceptional what i would uh, ask you though is like as you pointed out this is a massive overhaul of legislation would it be better if maybe instead of having these massive bills every 10 years we should be more in the habit of doing more regular kind of tinkering and updating with our national security legislation i mean i understand why we had to kind of do it all at once but do you think it might be a, a bit better if we could kind of tinker with it every say 2 years as opposed to every 10 years so you wouldn't have to have these kind of large bills
0: well we have built that into this legislation okay with the 5 year review right uh, and and that will uh, I think start that process of more, more periodic, more frequent updates uh, in the uh, uh, in the law. When you think of the CSIS Act, for example, uh, it was written in 1984. Um, at that time, uh, if you wanted to buy a cell phone, you would probably spend ten thousand dollars for it, <laughs> and it would be hard to carry around. Yeah. Um, it, Technology has changed so much uh, in that spirit, period of time. And you can only expect that uh, in the work that is done by CSIS and the work that's done by uh, the communications security established and by CBSA, the RCMP, the other agencies, um, the impact of technology is only going to accelerate. So we do need to have the capacity to have the law keep up with reality. Uh, and uh, that's that's one of the things, if you look at the more recent judgments of the federal court, mm-hmm. uh, they've said specifically, the CSIS Act is showing its age, mm-hmm. uh, simply because it hasn't been updated in a very major way since 1984. Uh, it is now, as a result of uh, of C-59. We're creating a whole new system for uh, managing and dealing with, with data sets, for example, that uh, that isn't in the law now needs to be there in order to make sure that uh, CSIS can do its job in a way that uh, has the right uh, legal and constitutional authorization. So, yeah, people do need to to keep more current with respect to with security law. Uh, and the issues are going to be large and they're going to change uh, and technology is going to keep advancing. So uh, the law has to stay up up to date.
1: And so you mentioned uh, in terms of federal court decisions, there's a federal court decision about the geographical reach of CSIS's foreign intelligence function when at issue is a communication that may straddle borders, and of course the federal court concluded that CSIS can't chase those communications across borders, and so that remains a sort of a perennial concern. I guess Stephanie's question is, you know, the, this was the National Security Act of 2017, should we move towards a model where we have a National Security Act of 2019, of 2020, of 2021 that does clean up uh, as the issues arise, rather than waiting for enough issues to accrue and have to correct them in a massive omnibus. Uh, uh, so, what's your
0: instinct, having can sat like the, the
2: normalization of national security policy?
0: I I would be in favor of taking a very good look at that to, to see if the law can be more more current, more up to date, subject to uh, uh, to an ongoing kind of, uh, of of review mechanism. Now, can can the parliamentary system accommodate that? Uh, That's a very good question because uh, it's taken us uh, basically four years to get this bill uh, conceived and drafted and approved through all stages uh, and finally to the point where it's uh, just about to become law. Parliament would have to be uh, more nimble in the future (laughs) than it has historically been. Uh, but uh, again, we've written right into the law, because, because this was such a, a huge undertaking, uh, we've written right into the law that uh, originally it was every five years, it may now be more frequent than that. Uh, there needs to be a review uh, of, uh, of the whole national security architecture. Uh, and we may conclude, subject to that review, that it's, uh, that it's fine. There may be aspects of it that will need to be improved and updated, and having the ability to uh to conduct the review and then make the necessary changes uh, in a more uh, expeditious manner uh, is uh, is is I think very wise for technological reasons that that's serious enough uh, for example uh, uh, issues about uh, you know the cross-border transferring of information uh, simply because of where the server is located and so right. forth that wasn't an issue in 1984 when CSIS was uh, invented or uh, even before that when uh, when CSE was was created so yeah w- w- the future will involve I think less massive but more frequent Right. Okay. adjustments in the law.
1: And that's an, a natural segue into I- issues that, that have come up and are part of the discussion, certainly on this podcast and elsewhere, uh, that aren't addressed by C-59, because no single piece of legislation could address all issues. Uh, and so w- one issue that's come up, and, and you raised it in a speech in January, I believe, is on the cyber side. Mm-hmm. And so at that time, you alluded to new legislation relating to Cybersecurity broadly defined in some manner. Are you able to tell some us? some
2: responsibilities uh, for? Um, it, it sounded like it was. We we're heading towards re- certain responsibilities and expectations for certain companies who are operating in this space. So yeah, can you?
0: Are, are you
1: able to tell us more about what you have in mind?
0: Well, the the, uh, uh, the next uh, bit of information after uh, a couple of speeches that I delivered back in the uh, back in the winter uh, came in in the budget. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, in the budget this, this last spring, mm-hmm. the, uh, uh, the Minister of Finance identified $145 million uh, for advancing other elements of our cybersecurity strategy. The budget last year included $750 million for cybersecurity. We were setting up the, uh, the new uh, cybercrime coordination unit within the RCMP, that consumed uh, a significant amount of that new money. Uh, the new uh, uh, Cyber Response Centre, which brought all the various bits and pieces together within the ambit of CSE. Uh, That was another part of what that money was used for. Uh, There was also a uh, uh, a significant uh, uh, amount of of money for the uh, Shared Services Canada to make sure that the Government of Canada systems were all uh, sound and secure as as they could uh, as they could be. Um, uh, that was in Budget 2018, uh, and we rolled out the uh, the cyber security strategy, the new cybersecurity strategy. Uh, shortly after the, the budget indicating exactly how that money would be would be used. But in this year's budget, 2019, uh, there's another element of that strategy, 145 million dollars, uh, intended to support legislation in relation to certain critical cyber uh, systems. Uh, and they were identified as uh, telecommunications, uh, finance, Energy uh, and transport, and in in those those particular sectors, we will be proposing legislation uh, that uh, indicates uh, the 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 kind of of uh, security behavior that that those systems need in order to keep themselves and thus keep Canadians safe and we will have the financial resources to, uh, to back that up. So that's what, the, that's what the legislation is intended to do. It's in the process of, of, uh, of being developed right now uh, in relation to uh, uh, those four sectors that were identified in the budget.
2: And so related to this, one of the issues, and I know you've had to deal with this in Canada, but as well as with Five Eyes Partners, is the issue of going dark.
1: Oh yeah. Um,
2: so, <laughs> by, by
1: which you mean encryption? But yeah, so basically so,
2: the use of encrypted right. apps by individuals who may be engaged in threat-related activity. Right.
1: And and the statistic we have that's public is that the RCMP say that seventy percent of the communications that they lawfully intercept pursuant to a warrant is now encrypted, uh, and so now we're talking about a substantial amount of communication that was once accessible with appropriate lawful access now being inaccessible unless you use brute force, et cetera, to decrypt, which is a resource consumptive. Uh, and so the, the the challenge is, you know, what to do about this. Um, and, of course, various allies are trying different things. We're not clear on where we're heading in this country, and there's a whole legal issue around the charter, et cetera.
0: Well, well we started that debate in the consultation about Bill C-59. Right, right. Uh, and there was uh, quite a bit of input that uh, that that came in from the public, those 75,000 uh, responses that we had to the public consultation. Uh, we also had uh, the work of the parliamentary committee, uh, and the the gist of the input from the public in those seventy five thousand submissions, uh, consistent with the recommendation from from the uh, from the parliamentary committee, the House of Commons committee, uh, was uh, that a lot further reflection was needed before. Uh, Canadians could settle on the right legal framework for dealing with this with issue th- this issue People uh, value v- and treasure very deeply uh, their uh, their their privacy and their their right to privacy. they also value and treasure very deeply their safety and their security and how do you deal with the intersection between those between those two it's a it's a, a an area that is going to take, uh, a great deal of careful work and reflection, uh, and it is an element of uh, of um, unfinished business from the initial consultation around around national security. Uh, one thing, though, that I that I found from the experience of consulting Canadians uh, before on C fifty nine, a lot of people said. Uh, Oh, don't do that. <laughs> that's, that's, that is going to uh, open so many contentious issues. Just, you know, do what internal consultation you need to do, make your decisions and get on with it. Um, well, that's how national security used to be dealt with over the last number of decades, uh, and I don't think that's satisfactory. You've got to bring the public uh, into the discussion. You've got to develop the basis and the consultation uh, for for future decision making. So uh, as we tackle an issue uh, like the dark web and encryption, um, uh, we've, uh, uh, we've 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 got to have Canadians uh, an, an absolutely integral part of that conversation. Uh, because if you uh, if you just make the decisions arbitrarily, you are going to create more political problems and make less progress.
1: Right, and we've had that experience with lawful access laws in the past, yep. where it's been very difficult to enact these. And, be- and that
0: was the very issue that bedeviled Bill C-51 of the previous right. government. Uh, there was no public consultation about what was in Bill C-51, and therefore it lacked legitimacy, uh, and a large number of Canadians voted against it in the last election. Um, C-59 was developed in an entirely different way, uh, and I think it has a large body of public consensus uh uh, behind it. so in tackling those equally contentious issues of the future like uh, uh, like how you deal with the uh, with, with the dark web, it's going to uh, it's going to be necessary and entirely appropriate and good public policy to engage the public in the discussion.
2: Okay, so we don't have a set direction yet, but presumably your advice is, is adopt a c59 approach to this issue as well.
0: C59 work worked, Pretty well okay. uh, in 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 how it brought Canadians together. As did uh, C22 around the the National Security and Intelligence Committee of parliamentarians. Uh, that was uh, a big hole in our in our transparency and accountability architecture. Every other Five Eyes country had some way to involve parliamentarians in dealing with classified information. Canada did not have that that technique. We now do with the. Uh, uh, with the uh, the new Nasi Cop, as I as I call it, um, and uh, based on its first year and a half of activity uh, as a committee of parliamentarians dealing with uh, sensitive classified information, uh, it's conducted itself pretty well.
2: So then, can we switch to perhaps your one of your favorite topics? I'm sure, which is the foreign fighter file. In the returnee file, which you know, very not heated debates, very calm, oh, very it's... rational. The the big issue has been, of course, the fact that we have 35 people who uh, are believed to be in uh, Canadian and in camps. Uh, one of our colleagues, uh, Amar Mar Singham, tends to go overseas and try to find them. Uh, I can't say I have I share his habits, but I share his interest mm-hmm. in what we need to do in this
0: space. This this is uh, a very major public safety national security uh, concern, uh, and uh, when the uh, the Daesh forces uh, began losing on the battlefield a couple of years ago, uh, and especially with the uh, with the fall of the city of Raqqa, um, and then the the series of further defeats that, that um, occurred for, for Daesh uh, and the uh, clear victory for the international coalition uh, to, uh, to counter Daesh, uh, the question naturally arose, what's going to happen with these people? There were um, several thousand, uh, one estimate as high as 40,000 uh, individuals from around the world that had gone into that general region of the world, uh, attracted in some perverse way by uh, by the activities of uh, of of, of Daesh. Canada's portion of that uh, is uh, is very small by international standards. Uh, in the public threat reports, we've uh, uh, we've identified the number of uh, in the neighborhood of 250.
2: Uh, Not all of who've gone to
0: Syria, though. No, 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 yeah. a, a very small fraction. yeah, of, of those. But, yeah, but people who have left Canada to engage in terrorist-related uh, activity, and a small fraction into the syria, Turkey
2: Iraq Iraq, Iraq yeah.
0: theater, others that have gone to other places in the uh, in the world in Africa or afghanistan or or uh, or Pakistan. But when they were in the Turkey, Iraq, Syria area uh, entirely preoccupied with their battlefield activity, uh, that was was one challenge that had to be dealt with. When they lost on the battlefield, then what? Uh, It's uh, it's not likely that they're just going to uh, disappear. Uh, So they they have manifested themselves in uh, two ways. Um, uh, much uh, greater activity in some places on the internet, which is uh, uh, equally dangerous, or uh, the question of uh, are they migrating...
2: To new locations? To new
0: locations. Right. Uh, And what do you do about that? And uh, will some of them in this process seek to uh, go back to the countries from whence they came in the first place? Um, We've been obviously watching very carefully especially since the fall of Raqqa, uh, and uh, there has not been any surge of, of uh, returnees to, uh, uh, to Canada. Uh, in fact, the vast majority of travel activity, both going over and coming back uh, to the extent that it has occurred, uh, was before 2016. Uh, and the, uh, the, the overall uh, numbers uh, from 2015, 2016, 2017, 2018, uh, vis-a-vis Canada, remains uh, very stable. Uh, the numbers don't change very much at all. And that's reflected in the public threat reports, uh, showing the, the pretty constant figures. But we are obviously concerned, uh, deeply concerned, about uh, what those... Uh, individuals uh, as few as they are what they may ultimately do Uh, so we are uh, watching very carefully uh, making sure we are as informed as we can possibly be about who they are and where they are uh, and what they have the capacity to do Um, the uh, they're in a part of the world where there's no functional government there is no diplomatic presence. It's very hard even to have consular presence uh, in uh, dysfunctional region. So we are uh, at the at the moment collecting information. And uh, I- information is the uh, really the lifeblood of uh, of national security and public safety to know as much as you can possibly know about the potential threats that exist uh, so that you can, uh, plan and coordinate your responses to be effective uh, in the event you need to have a response. Uh, and we are going to uh, um, make sure that uh, uh, the Canadians are properly protected from the threats uh, that these individuals may pose. Very few of them in relation to Canada. Yes, Very few of them in relation to Canada. But we want to be ready for every eventuality. And I can just add one one further thought to that as well. If they are Canadian citizens, they they do have a constitutional right and Canada has a constitutional responsibility to uh, allow them to re-enter the country. Mm -hmm. But we do not have a legal obligation to facilitate that return. Uh, And that is a very important public policy distinction. I
2: I guess what uh, I would just follow up with, and and I appreciate this is a a challenging question to which I don't have any easy answers, but the fact is you have a bunch of people who are in camps, um, many of whom are children who are being exposed to, you know, some very bad folks who were in, you know, you say, Daesh, I... You know, Islamic State, uh, I just don't trust my Arabic pronunciation. Is it more of a public safety threat to bring them here, either try them or get them into some kind of uh, counter violent extremism program? Um, and yes, I appreciate, you know, we're heading into elections, there's a lot of political flack. Is, is that worse, or is it worse to kind of let these people sit in that environment where they're basically constantly going to be exposed to some of the worst ISIS fighters who just happen to be able to survive?
0: We, we have to think this through very, very carefully. I think it's, uh, it, it, it's fair to say at a, at a very high level that there's uh, very little sympathy among Canadians for these individuals who would have travelled halfway around the world to engage in some of the uh, most gruesome, heinous atrocities you could, you could possibly uh, imagine. Um, our objective, obviously, in dealing with them uh, is to uh, collect the evidence about their behavior uh, lay charges and uh, prosecute to the full extent of the law uh, to to make sure that uh, that that justice is done uh, there is a very significant challenge in uh, accumulating the necessary evidence to pursue uh, the appropriate legal proceedings uh, in a canadian court of law gets back to the the old issue about uh, Intel to evidence and and being able to oh, we'll uh, get there. Uh, <laughs> make, uh, make charges make charges stick. but the the, the objective first and foremost is to uh, is to lay those charges and prosecute. Now, of the relatively small number that returned to Canada before uh, uh, 2016, four charges have been laid, four prosecutions have been have been achieved and uh, four convictions in relation to that that small group. So what about the future? What if there are more who find some way back to Canada? Our goal will be to uh, arrest them, charge them, and prosecute. The biggest challenge is with relation to children right? Uh, and uh, in most cases very, very young uh, children. All of the Western world has to think this through very carefully uh, how do we avoid a second generation of Daesh? Uh, and uh, uh, that needs to be a public policy imperative for uh, all countries in resisting what, the havoc that, uh, that Daesh has, has wreaked already on, on the world. So this, I think, reveals that this is a very international problem. At all of the meetings that I've been at in the last couple of years, at least, of uh, G7 ministers or Five Eyes ministers, uh, the issue of how we can collaborate together uh, to deal with the physical threat, to collect evidence, evidence that we can all make use of, so that when charges are laid, those charges uh, can stick through appropriate prosecutions and, and, uh, uh, and convictions. Uh, all of that is uh, um, a very active topic of conversation among, among Western allies. We all have the same challenges and we all want to be equally effective at uh, dealing with the physical threat uh, and then dealing with the, uh, the future threat of uh, children. And, and the best interests of the child need to be factored in here. In some cases, uh, you know, if a country were to say, well, we'll go into that region and we'll just take the children out. Uh, well, actually, that's kidnapping, uh, and you've you've got to think this through about how you deal with children in the custody of parents who have uh, who have put themselves and their families uh, in a very invidious position. But in all of this, number one consideration, number one imperative, is. The security of Canada and the safety of Canadians and that will always be our guiding principle
1: Minister I'm cognizant of, of the of the time you've been very generous with your time but i I, I would let down our listeners who uh, anticipate this question for every podcast <laughs> you've mentioned intelligence evidence several several times which gladdens my heart of course uh, it is a solvable or at least partially solvable problem it, it does require uh, cultural change in the services, but it does require probably also some legislative tinkering. Is this, in terms of the going forward priority areas, should this be a priority for for uh, a future government, another another parliament? Do you anticipate it being such a priority?
0: Uh, I, I do. Yes, uh, it, it's a it is a, a a legal and a practical operational question uh, that has to be has to be sorted out. Uh, because it uh, it's a huge gap in our system right now and we've got to figure out how you deal with that conundrum and it's 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 important to public safety it's important to the proper administration of justice so uh, yeah it's uh, it the, uh, the the technological issues around the the, uh, the dark web that's 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 part of the future equation uh, the future agenda of things that need to get done dealing with the uh, uh, intelligence to, uh, to evidence uh, uh, problem. That's, uh, that's part of it as well. Uh, and another part of it is uh, dealing with the, uh, the social media companies and the, all that plethora of platforms uh, that can be used for great social good and at the same time great social harm with uh, uh, issues uh, like terrorist propaganda, like uh, extremist violence, Uh, like uh, the use of social platforms for the uh, promotion of the the sexual exploitation of children, uh, the issues around human trafficking, the potential to to, uh, interfere and undermine uh, democracy. Uh, All of those issues uh, are also a critical part of the ongoing agenda.
1: Great. Well, thanks very much for joining us today and and being so accommodating and and generous with your time. And uh, going forward, it sounds like a very busy agenda. And of course, it continues to be a very... crazy three
2: weeks. Busy busy portfolio. It's going to be a crazy three weeks, but uh, uh, thanks. It's
0: an incredibly complex portfolio, always exhilarating, always challenging, but uh, there's never a dull day in public safety. (laughs) I
2: never thought our podcast would have so much material, so, you know... Uh, it's it's been interesting it for us too. <laughs> yeah, so keep it up. Thank you so much.
0: Very glad to talk to you.